back here with the Looking Glass Forum, and we remain vigilant in the struggle to restore the factual basis for American independence and rebuild the moral conviction to defend our constitutionally protected political liberty. Remember, the lies are many, but the truth is one. So you're back here with the Looking Glass Forum, and we're just going to go through another episode here, look at some current events, look at a few interesting sections from a few books that we had out, and we need to be equipped with the accurate record of events. We must discover a useful depiction of the historical legacy upon which our American freedoms are built and acknowledged by all. We have the freedom to research and reveal the truth of history, separating the clever distortions and the intentional omissions of the fact. We are actively defending the legacy of America free thought and of the freedom of for intellectual pursuit as an American freedom, the freedom of conscience. And as we're learning to decipher the symbols and to perceive the components of the larger conflict, which extends across the whole chronicle of written history, we have to learn how to see and read between the lines. The larger scale of human liberation is threatened by the neo-communist attempt to push the civil society here in America and across Europe and in South America also into regressive self-destruction. And as the state governors, as we're seeing in Portland, Oregon, and the local city councils begin to use their power as elected officials to encourage the civil overthrow and to empower the rabble in the street, and they incite them and give them room and give them space to foster their insurrection as they try to burn down the federal courthouse. And we're seeing this in California and in Texas and other areas. And as these neo-communists in government work hand-in-hand with the neo-communists and the radicals in the local government and in and in the street to overrun the police, there will be no protection, no barrier between the citizenry and the looting mobs no enforcement of law, and if a section of our nation plunges into into fractious anarchy and flames, then BLM will then be burned, loot, and murder. And this will be the consequence of the civil government not only allowing this kind of illegal, destructive behavior, but also encouraging it and making it possible by pushing the federal law enforcement out and allowing the, the neo-communists to, to let their revolution take root. And we are looking at a wide coup. If they can just take one city and one county and then one section of the state, it's a coup against our national sovereignty, which will leave our future in the hands of Bolsheviks who are working to destroy our free popular government. As we, the wider American populace begins to discover what's going on, the reactionary attempt to maintain American freedom and to take back the self-government, the government will result in a new civil war. In order to examine the, the issue a little more closely, we're going to listen to a little clip here from Mark Levin. Where we have law enforcement appreciation days around the country. What's happening now? is these thugs, most of whom, the vast majority of whom are white, are black, are dressed in black, and they are viciously attacking citizens. Viciously attacking them. So if you're going to go to one of these events, you better make sure that you're prepared to defend yourselves and fight back. Because these are unprovoked attacks. You can see that the Democrats in Congress are supporting the attackers that they are attacking the police, that the Democrats who run these cities are preventing the police from protecting people who want to speak, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, which we all also have under the Constitution. All you hear on the media is that these are mostly peaceful. They're mostly violent and brutal. And people are getting hurt because they, they dare to collect as a group 
They dare to speak out. They dare to defend the institutions of this country. They are being systematically brutalized. Systematically brutalized. And the violent perpetrators are being defended by the Democrat Party. Most of them are members of the Democrat Party. And people are just going to have to defend themselves. I'll be right back. I want you to see how innocent American citizens like you who attend a rally in support of the police are being violently attacked. Violently attacked. Men bleeding from the head. Violently attacked. I'm telling you, if this country goes full Democrat, things are going to change. They're going to change, and they're going to change aggressively. And I don't believe the whole of society is going to take it sitting down. I really don't. I don't believe it. I just don't believe they're going to tell the citizens are going to take this sitting down. The relentless attack. Even see the, the attacks within newspapers where the left has taken over. And crushed any dissent. In newsrooms around the country, crushed any dissent. You see the Democrat Party now. There are moderates in the Democrat Party. Biden had to go full Marxist. If he had any hope of uh, getting the support of the Democrat Party base. So the Democrat Party's dead. This is, this is uh, Marxism, anarchism, call it what you want. they're not going to roll over us. It's not going to be so easy. It's not going to be so easy. We'll see how things evolve. But you can't treat fellow Americans who love this country like sitting ducks. With the Democrat mayors and Democrat governors, pull them off so you can't be protected. And then the, uh, the Democrat mobs are unleashed with all kinds of weapons to brutalize innocent citizens. This isn't going to go on forever. It can't and it won't. It can't and it won't. And I want you to remember, it's the Democrat Party that keeps lighting fuses around this country, just as it has in the past. Just as it has in the past. All right, so that's just a little clip that we had of just to give you an example of the current kind of punditry and the kind of philosophical thought that's being put into this larger national dilemma that we're facing politically. And it's obvious that, that the neo-leftists are going to crash the kind of legal, stable, Republican, Democrat, party voting, ballot measure kind of thinking. They're they're here to smash the old idea that, that citizens need to vote when they can just go down and burn down the local courthouse. That's the kind of movement. And they're going to appeal to the most base and most perverse and most violent and kind of sick in society who will just, this will appeal to them. And recently we're seeing a lot of people with weird pedophile crimes and pedophile histories and, and violent violent backgrounds uh, being let loose in the streets to run up and down and shoot their weapons. Kids are constantly being killed. So you can see that the madness of this kind of riotous, destructive kind of revolt. It's not a productive political change in a sense of a, of a, a move towards political liberation it's a descent into anarchy, bloodshed, and violence. So let's take another clip here. Let's take another listen here at the beginning of the show. 
to a clip on Sebastian Gorka's program with Victor David Hansen, and they're going to talk about how devastating this racially polarized political revolution really can get to be when you project it into the future. Yeah, and you even use the word apartheid for that future America. Explain why you use such powerful language, Professor Hansen. Well, I think now the left has given up on the dream of Martin Luther King that to judge people or assess them by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin. And I say that because just in the recent last 10 days, we've had to have uh, Kareem Al-Jabbar and Charles Barkley come out and lecture black musicians, athletes to stop, stop this rampant, unapologetic anti-Semitism. We've seen places in the federal government uh, the Pentagon, Seattle, where there is, I guess you would call it white re-education, where people are selected on the basis of their skin color to go through particularly mandatory indoctrinations. We've had a county in Oregon that tried to demand masks for everybody on the basis of skin color, blacks being exempted. And then the uh, Nicole Anna Jones, one of the architects of the 1619 Project, out of her past comes some pretty racist statements that she said she's unapologetic about. It. What I'm getting at is that the Black Lives Matter now has dropped all pretenses that it's going to work within the traditional contours of American culture and history, and that is by assimilation, integration, and marriage. It sees itself as a black separatist movement that has moral claims on the country and in preparatory fashion wants things from the majority and then intends to continue to define its privilege on the basis of race. And to that end, how significant was it, Professor, that in the Wallace interview this weekend, the president actually mentioned the damaging effect of uh, uh, artifacts and, and projects like the 1619 Project? That's, that's an unusual thing for a president to discuss, is it not? It is, but then it's unusual for people in the 244th year of the republic to rename its foundation. That's something we saw in the French Revolution or the Maoist Revolution, or to rename places and streets, or whole towns, or destroy uh, statuary, some of which would be considered liberal. This revolution is also very strange. It's not like the 60s, because the aging 60 liberal in the position of power has been forced to join the revolution. In other words, in the old days, they were opposed to the police trying to keep order. The army, the military was there if you needed them. The establishment said we're not going to give in to the, this radical movement. Now, whether you're a blue state mayor, police chief, governor, or whether you're in the retired or active military, or you're in the corporate world, there's a sense that this movement cannot be stopped and you better join it before it takes you down too. And so there's no constituency formal other than the president who's actively opposing it. Writers will sign petitions and fired professors and authors will pr protest, but there's nobody galvanized. There's, I don't see the House members. I don't see the Senate members. I don't see conservative intellectuals. I don't see people. I've never seen anything like it. They feel it's almost inevitable. Maybe it's the August dog days of summer, maybe it's the fear of the contagion and the lockdown, but something has to radically change very quickly or this revolution.
revolution will succeed. He's the author of The Case for Trump on Twitter. You can follow him at V.D. Hansen. And in your piece for American Greatness, you state that unlike prior 20th century left-wing revolutions, it's not the rich, it's not the plutocrats, it's not the Silicon Valley billionaires that will be the enemy, that they will be safe. You say it will be the... The, the upper middle class, the small business owner, how have the plutocrats, how have the, the billionaires secured their safety from the new Jacobins? Well, they've told them that you can't win unless we reorder the search logarithms on Google or that we censor people on YouTube or we adjudicate advertising on Facebook on the basis of politics or the New York Times and the uh, Washington Post will be blatantly and overtly prejudicial and money will be given in huge amounts by our foundations and so they've they pledged that and notice that the revolution has responded in kind they're not attacking the Roosevelt Monument in Washington. They're not uh, after left-wing symbols. Nobody's saying Margaret Sanger, the eugenicist that really unleashed a genocidal culture of abortion on the black community should be deplatformed. De her memory or her statue should be torn down. So they have got, I guess we would call it medieval exemption by paying over to the revolution. Sort of like some of the Bolsheviks in Russia got, Russian aristocrats thought that they might be spared, so they, they gave money to Lenin. And, and in this case, the real enemy will be the people who generate most wealth in the United States, and that's the 60% the in the middle. Is that correct? Yeah, they're the, they're the to keep the metaphor alive, they're the kulaks. The kulaks. Those, middle class, upper, upper middle class, the people that sell insurance, successful salesmen, business owners, uh, professionals. Uh, these are the people who want to be millionaires if they're not millionaires already, but they hire a lot of people. They don't, they don't have the aristocratic taste and culture of the very wealthy, and yet they're not romantic like the poor. So the, the left despises them, the plutocratic left despises them as wannabes, and uh, they're the people who there are the 10 or 12 million people who left California once it targeted them, uh, their tax brackets, and uh, became a, a state of very wealthy people and very poor people. In the last 30 seconds we have with you in this segment, Professor Hansen, does that layer, does that stratum know that there is a cultural war in effect nationally? I think they do. They may think that it's regional that the deplorables and the irredeemables are people in the red interior, but I have a feeling that if you're a restaurant owner in San Francisco or you're a barber on the Upper West Side, you better very quickly realize that the tax policy and the policing policy are aimed at you. You have nothing for the revolution except that you're a bourgeoisie successful person who you didn't build. Remember the rhetoric? Oh, yes. You, you didn't build that. And now we will ask in the next segment Lenin's question, what is to be done? Back with Professor Hansen. It all 
always connect with none other than Professor Victor Davis Hansen of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Follow him right now, VD Hansen on Twitter. And if you haven't done so already, no excuses. Order his book, The Case for Trump. The latest article, Professor, you have at amgreatnessamericangreatness.com is Will 2021 Be 1984? You describe the, the cultural revolution that thanks to things like the Chinese virus would otherwise be impossible in America, but which is driving uh, this year's election. Let, let me ask the, the classic uh, communist question from the point of view of those who wish to defeat the cultural revolution. What is to be done? Is this merely a, a threat to the representative uh, Republican democracy we have that rests on the shoulders of President Trump and, and that handful, that coterie of Republicans who wants to fight? Or is there a role for for the average American to, to prevent this cultural revolution on our shores? Well, they have to they have to get out and they have to vote and they have to vote for someone that's not perfect but is better than the alternative. That's their attitude. It's too late to say, well, Trump tweets. or so. That's irrelevant now. We're not about Trump or Biden. We're about civilization and anarchy. Because remember, if the Democrats win, the progressives will take over. And they can enact constitutional change. There's nothing in the Constitution that says they cannot enlarge the Supreme Court on January 31st of 2021. They'll try that. They'll get rid of the filibuster if they win the Senate. They'll enlarge the Supreme Court. The next thing they'll do is they'll nullify or neuter the Electoral College. You can do that by this compact by getting the majority of the states to pledge their delegates to the uh, national uh, vote count. They're almost there now. They can render the elect. They can go after uh, senators being popularly elected rather than two per state. They have a whole list, uh, a whole agenda that will really change this country from a constitutional republic into something like Venezuela. And wealth tax, uh, high income tax, high gas tax, fracking. They have a whole agenda that will radically transform the United States. It'll make us materially poorer, less free. Remember one thing also, Sebastian, the one amendment that the founders thought was the key to all 10 was the Second Amendment. Yes. They argued about the need for a Bill of Rights because they said if people are armed and they're autonomous and the government can't take away anything from them, the first thing they will go after is the Second Amendment. And they can do that legislatively if they have a sympathetic court. And I think they do. They will have one. On that topic of the Second Amendment, which uh, vouchsafes all the other, uh, are you um, fearful of a, a, a civil war because of the things that the radical left has, has managed to achieve already and may achieve if they win the election? I'm worried because the 60s was not did not have a geographical dimension. The 1860s did. We have a because of globalization, over the last 50 years, we have created a coastal culture from Seattle to La Jolla and from Boston to Washington, D.C. or below, maybe all the way to Miami. And that culture is markedly different from the interior. And the, the two areas are about half the same size and population. And when you see people, within, and then around the Great Lakes as well, when you see people in these states that allow that drop charges against criminal behavior or they, they promote, I'm talking about 
local and state officials, they promote the destruction of uh, iconic statues. It's a, it's a different culture, and they do not like any resistance toward it from the interior. So what, what we have now is sort of a monastery of the mind. By that I mean a lot of people just say to themselves, I'm not going to watch the NBA. I'm not going to watch the NFL anymore. I'm not going to watch a Hollywood movie anymore. I don't. I flip off NPR. No more PBS stuff. I just am tired of it all. And they've gone into their cocoons. And the $64,000 question is, how many are there, and to what degree are they going to rise up on Election Day? Polls tell us that they're spent. They're tired. They just they're in a fetal position. They don't. They just want to make it all go away. Maybe if they don't vote for Trump or don't vote at all, then Biden will be able to just say, you know, take it, and there will be calm. I don't believe that's true, but it's something that has to be manifested by Labor Day. People by Labor Day have to get out, give money to candidates, be be vocal. And get the polls up for Donald Trump because these polls are being, I think, manipulated. Uh, they are down for Trump, but they're used to raise money. So they go to corporate and wealthy people and say, I know you have no ideology and you always give money to the winner, but now the polls say Trump is losing, so you better get on the bat. And his fundraising has increased for that reason. And that was the intent, I think, indeed, of some of the polls. In- so go ahead and stop it right there. And I think it's widely recognized at this point where it matters as far as where the actual uh, truthful, intellectually honest thinkers are going to put forward an accurate depiction of the facts rather than a constant ball of various deceptions in order to create a political outcome. We're just talking about the facts of what's actually taking place. And it looks like that it's pretty clear that there, for the last 20 years, has been a widespread neo-Marxist peer culture gestating within the universities and within academia. And as these people are going into their professional lives, in the court, and in your kids' public schools, and all throughout the civil society, they're able to effectuate this massive political destabilization and social unrest. And then you're obviously able to to hobble together these three radicals, the useful idiots, and the people that are willing to come out and help to burn down their own neighborhoods. So let's listen to one more clip pertains to this whole subject matter. Here's a little clip by The Chris Plant Show. Happy Monday to you. Look what the Democrats are doing to our nice country. They'd like your vote in November. They're burning the country down city by city. They're anti-police. They're anti-capitalist. They're anti-you. They're anti-family. They're anti-Israel. They're anarchists. They're violent. They're rioting. Although it's uh, mostly peaceful. The riots, of course, are mostly peaceful. I love mostly peaceful as a slogan. The Democrat Party. Mostly peaceful. There should be a colon in there somewhere. We all know how they love their colons. We are at 888-630-9625-888-630-9625 is the telephone number here. And uh, it's true, I've been off. I was uh, off last week once again. I, I didn't even mean to be. It was uh, it's kind of not really a choice of my own, but perhaps we'll uh, get into that. It's not like I was suspended. It's a little company policy. I didn't get in trouble or anything like that. But everybody's being asked to take some time off here and there, and so uh, that's what I was doing last week. But all is well. And... Uh, and I am uh, back in the saddle, as they say in the song lyrics. And uh, gosh, once again, so little to cover. And 
so much time. Many, many things to get to, and you may have been watching. There were peaceful riots. And uh, how many, how many uh, police officers were wounded in uh, just in Seattle alone? Just in, just in the city of Seattle, because it's 59. The answer is 59 police officers injured in Seattle. Uh, the Democrat Party's mob, the the uh, the left wing mob in the street, which is violent. Uh, just by the way, but the news media tells you that they're peaceful or mostly peaceful, which is code for violent because you can't be mostly peaceful. Charles Manson throughout his lifetime was mostly peaceful. Much more peaceful than, well, some of his compatriots too. And much more peaceful than these Democrats in the street, no doubt about it. There were 47 people arrested and then you get headlines. <laughs> I love this uh, K-I-N-G in, uh, in Seattle and Washington. King 5 Seattle protests remain peaceful after 47 arrested in Saturday, quote, riot, end quote. Now, then the headline, they leave out that 59 police officers were wounded because news media has been so corrupted at every level. It's just like it's like a third world country. Really, our news media is like third world news media. They're so corrupt, so spectacularly dishonest and bought and paid for by the Democrat Party. Extraordinary stuff. They found, uh, let's see, in, uh, in uh, Seattle. Uh, this was Portland. It's easy to get them confused. Portland, Oregon, which is just a pustule on the buttocks of humanity at this point. And uh, they, they found uh, more riots there and uh, police attacked and the mayor blames the police and, and uh, how dare the police come in to protect federal property when the city and the state are not doing it because they're so spectacularly corrupt and disconnected from reality. They found a, uh, uh, a cache, it's not a cache, but a cache of loaded rifle magazines, I believe they're AK-47 magazines, in a bag along with Molotov cocktails uh, ready to go. And, you know, they're using walkie-talkies and uh, also they're, they're uh, attacking the uh, secretary, the home of the secretary, acting secretary of uh, the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. A mob descended on his home this weekend to threaten and menace his family. The Democrats, in the meantime, and they're expressing their support for the people in Portland. Now, what, what happened in Portland again? Uh, what, is that uh, where George Floyd was killed? No, that was in Minneapolis. There was a uh, guy killed, shot and killed at one of the protesters in Austin, Texas. I believe there were five, at least five people shot at peaceful protests across the country over the weekend. At least one shot and killed. Uh, the one who was shot and killed was carrying an AK-47 and was approaching a car that I haven't heard this guy's version of events. His car was uh, at an intersection. There was a mob of people in Austin, Texas. On Saturday night at 10 p.m., a 28-year-old guy was shot to death because he was really upset about George Floyd being killed by a police officer in Minneapolis on Memorial Day. So naturally at 10 o'clock this past Saturday night, he was blocking traffic in Austin, Texas with an AK-47 slung over his shoulder. But pay no attention to that. And there were two militia groups. Where was this? In Louisville? Uh, two militia groups. One black militant militia group, about 300 strong, that the news media keeps uh, ignoring. They were at Stone Mountain in Georgia a while back. They said there were a thousand of them there. Black militants dressed in all black ninja gear with machine guns and uh, and they're uh, threatening whitey and coming out and uh, calling for race war and civil war. And the news media admires them, I think. They, they haven't hit their houses and their neighborhoods and their kids yet. So they're still in favor of the black militia groups. And then there was another militia group. I assume it was a white militia group, although it wasn't described that way. And there were about 
50 of them, and they were armed too. And uh, fortunately, it didn't turn into, uh, you know, a Fort Sumter, the Civil War. But it does look like uh, the Democrats are going to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing and uh, tightening the screws, uh, upping the pressure, because they're not done yet. And uh, we're not sure exactly what their end game is. Well, we are kind of sure. Uh, for many of them, it's revolution and the overthrow of the capitalist system and the American way of life, uh, the constitutional republic that we've created here. That That is essentially the, the, the stated goal of many of those are the stated goals of many of the quasi-psychotic uh, revolutionary left that are burning our cities and riding in the streets and attacking the police and, and all of that good stuff. Okay, so we're going to just pause that right there. That was Chris, the Chris Plant Show. And I think with these three takes, you can clearly see um, from three fairly different perspectives what we're looking at as the political and popular social climate within the country at this point. And so there's some other content that I want to get to. And as we work through this episode, it becomes increasingly clear that the structure of our nation is under a sustained onslaught on many levels. Partisan politicians are playing a dangerous game supporting anarchic neo-communists in order to fatigue and overrun local law enforcement. They're pushing citizens into virus lockdowns while trying to remove private gun rights, while they incite violent street mobs with racially charged rhetoric, and they urge vitriolic, contemptible attacks on the public as though these attacks on motorists and random citizens are somehow a politically legitimate demonstration, as if protesting for civil change included dragging motorists out of their vehicles, stopping traffic on the highway, smashing people's vehicles burning businesses, and attacking federal courthouses. Destroying our system of laws is an attack on our freedoms and our liberties. These flaming riots and all the murders that came with it are an act of war. All war is based on deception. The deception here is that these outrageous assaults against our citizens, our police, and our society as a whole are an attempt to establish freedom and protect liberty. But this is a grotesque lie, a uniform campaign of deception. The program of these anti-American radicals is to destroy your constitutional protected liberties and to destroy your constitutionally protected rights and freedoms. So the local courts and the police can no longer function. So the average citizens have no longer any expectation that police will protect them from, from criminals. These are not political movements. They are well-organized crime waves aimed at a certain segment of the populace. There is no systemic white supremacy. There is only a neo-communist propaganda effort aimed at turning this diverse, multicultural civil society in on itself, pitting communities against one another. They're instigating a civil war. The sports franchises are pushing it. Hollywood is fomenting civil unrest. Academia is demanding white guilt and reparations. In, in Congress is treated like a legitimate and practical legislative concept. All the victim groups and radical neo-communist indoctrination are aiming their philosophical weaponry at so-called white people. And just like the Stalinists before them, like in Cambodia, Pol Pot, and Yugoslavia in World War II, it's a tried and true mechanism of ideologically driven national self-destruction. You got to remember, in Yugoslavia, the Italian dictatorship and the, the Nazi, the German dictatorship came in there and acted like they were liberators, but they quickly caused the people to turn on one another. And they forced hundreds of thousands to 
turned from their Orthodox Christian roots to Roman Catholicism. And those who wouldn't were murdered. It says on Wikipedia, three to 400,000, but we know from history that that's a lie, that it was probably more around one and a half, two million people. And somehow, like, by diminishing these figures on the internet, they think that somehow they give their, their own contemptible, neo-fascist political ideals a better foot to stand on. So these neo-leftist radicals work to break down police protections, and with the support of the NBA and Hollywood sycophants and CNN propagandists and the Democrats and national government, they will begin to attack the average people of America and attempt to, to trod underfoot the American citizenry, which has the real power in this country. The American citizenry has the power to vote and to direct the course of this country. So that's who, who's in the crosshairs. Do you think that these agitators will take a break from their looting and burning so you can hold peaceful elections? Do you believe that this new push to hold a mail-in ballot is set to help stabilize American voting rights? Or is it being introduced to eviscerate those rights and empty voting of its power? How desperate is Nancy Pelosi and these deep state conspirators need to have their power back? Obama sounded like a psychopath at the funeral. A funeral for the senator recently, an absolute madman. He sounded like a true psychopathic dictator. It looks like he is on his way back to attempt another run at the White House, and he expects these street radicals and the, the black KKK, the black racist groups that are running around the country, to support his push. They don't care about the election. They don't care about people's voting rights. They don't care about your ballot. They just want to take power back for their own purposes. Murderers were released in California. Gavin Newsom released a murderer who had killed many people and was sentenced to serve 87 more years in prison. These are the kind of people, these are the kind of offenders that they're releasing from prison. Is this not an attack on the public citizenry? That these violent offenders are being released back into the populace? Who is that going to hurt? They're showing you that the system of justice cannot be counted on, and that even when people are murdering people, they, they will be released right back into the street. It's been happening like this for a long time, as the uh, the Mexicans, the illegal Mexican invaders uh, coming from South America, jumping the border, find that when they drive around the country with no license, they get, they get released. If you're an American citizen, you don't get to drive around this country with their license, you get to go right to jail. But if you're an illegal Mexican national invading the country, taking up jobs, then you will not be arrested. They'll just release you. It doesn't matter if you commit crime. You can you can attack and beat to death a 15-year-old kid. You can rape little kids, but they will release you right back into the public. You know why? It's because you don't have a social security. They don't have a social security number. They're not indebted to the system. Therefore, the construct of laws that uphold this military government don't apply to them. They're immune. They're exempt. Only people that are subject to arrest by the police are people that have social security numbers. Because you're in, in federal indebted servitude. You elected the representatives who went up to Washington. Those elected representatives went and put this entire country into massive and real, actual, factual bank debt to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars. And you, the citizen, you don't have any ability to pay that back. But you owe it. You owe it through the federal government. All those Federal Reserve notes were bank credit that we borrowed from other large bank institutions, and they printed it out as debt notes. So they're not going to have any Mexican nationals be held accountable under these this military government statutory system they got going here. We have never experienced a violent communist coup d'etat a radical overthrow of our government before. These neo-communists were not elected. They're here to just destroy elections, to destroy our popular sovereignty and our democratically held republic and remove our ability to choose our own government. This is an election year virus. These are election year sh shutdowns. And this is an election year race riot. These movements are not going to fade as we move toward the elections. They will intensify. 
It will attempt to create such a widespread calamity, such a massive destabilization of society, that the elections can be called into question. It's a parallel track with the mail-in ballots, an easy-to-manipulate scheme. And if it wasn't the case, they wouldn't be pushing it so desperately. In the background of all this, we are witnessing the birth of the North American Union, the economic collapse of the Constitutional Republic of America, which is effectuated by the hyperinflation of the Federal Reserve note, also known as the petrodollar. It's just being devalued. Pretty soon, your dollar in your pocket in a few months won't be worth more than a few pennies. And as our paper fiat currency collapses, our AAA national credit rating as a country will be gone, and we will be bankrupt as a national enterprise. So we're just going to take a few minutes and have a break, and we will be right back with you. Come and check out our hot new styles, find gold, silver, jewelry, and women's fashion apparel gifts for every occasion at Wendy's Boutique. Go to wendyslimited.com, all one word, that's wendyslimited.com. So we're back here at the Looking Glass Forum. We're having a very challenging and enlightening discussion. We're going to bring forth some more uh, facts of history that you probably didn't have any real understanding about. There's a lot of historical propaganda that works to obscure the reality of, of these facts. And as you accumulate the true historical perspective, you can see that there's a large-scale dilemma that's exposed. And we have to get past this concept of the deep state, which is a, just a generic terminology that was applied to a group like the Illuminati, which was just another name, another pseudonym to describe the same exact apparatus that had always been in place. So right now we're going to take a look at a very interesting book here. And this was published by Visible Inc. 2006. It's uh, Brad Steiger, Jerry Hansen Steiger, released a book called Conspiracies and Secret Societies. So we'll get right into it here. I just want to start reading in this area we're going to start focusing on in the 1860s surrounding the whole controversy of the Lincoln assassination. So let's just get right into it. Lincoln had little to do with his vice president after Johnson disgraced himself on Inauguration Day by being drunk, even when he made his speech to Congress. Slurring his words and making numerous inappropriate comments, Johnson had to be helped to his seat by Hamlin. With the memory of his embarrassment clearly in mind, Mary Todd Lincoln felt certain that the miserable inebriate Johnson had something to do with her husband's death. Johnson was cleared of any involvement in Lincoln's death by a special congressional assassination committee formed specifically to investigate him. Regardless of the committee's declaration of Johnson's innocence, many Americans regarded him with suspicion for decades to come. Lincoln was assassinated as a result of a Confederate plot. It seemed logical in 1865 to assume that John Wilkes Booth was acting within a much larger circle of Confederate conspirators who would consider Lincoln a legitimate wartime target of assassination. And as we pointed out before with other researchers, John Wilkes Booth was a part of a secret society called the Knights of the Golden Circle. And of course, in this book, which only has a relative surface information, even though it's about secret societies, it doesn't discuss that. And that's what you're going to find. You're going to find that history is a battleground. That you need to put together the facts, even when other people are going to leave the information out. They're going to create an entire book, write an entire history, just to leave the pertinent information out so that you, as the public, cannot discover and collect a catalog of facts in order to see clearly, to have a clear picture of the history. You, you will not be able to find this unless you work around the obstacles. So let's get back to the book. A plan to blow up the White House with Lincoln and his cabinet along with, with it gained some impetus after the South was shaken by the letters found in the pocket of the youngest colonel in the Union Army. In the winter of 1864, Union Brigadier General Hugh Judson Kilpatrick conceived a plan to raid Richmond 
and free more than 1,500 Union officers and 10,000 enlisted men held prisoner there. President Lincoln personally endorsed the raid because of the pressure he received daily from people protesting the Confederate treatment of the Union soldiers in the swampy prison camp. On February 28, 1864, Kilpatrick led 3,600 cavalry troops across the Rapidan River, riding south toward Richmond. The following day, 21-year-old Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren, who had lost his right arm at Gettysburg, took 460 men to the west to cross the James River, intending to circle around undetected to Richmond's lightly defended southern portals. Kilpatrick would engage the main force of Confederates while Dahlgren freed the prisoners. Unfortunately for the Union prisoners, the James River was too high to cross at the appointed place, so Dahlgren continued toward Richmond on the wrong side of the river and was confronted by Southern militiamen. When Kilpatrick, a leader so devoid of skill that his men had nicknamed him Kill Calvary, met resistance at Richmond's outer defenses, he ordered a hasty retreat. Left to flounder on their own without the main body of cavalry, Dahlgren's men headed back toward Union lines in a freezing rain. On March 2nd, Dahlgren was killed in a Confederate ambush. The story of the ill-fated campaign wouldn't rate more than a footnote in the annals of the Civil War if it was to come to be known as the Dahlgren papers had not been retrieved from the young colonel's inside coat pocket. Captain Edward Aldack skimmed over the orders outlining the details of the failed raid, and he became appalled and could hardly believe his senses when he read that the actual objective of the raid was to burn Richmond to the ground and kill President Jefferson Davis as a tower cabinet. Hallback immediately brought the incendiary papers to General Robert E. Lee, who had them photocopied and sent to Major General George Meade, the Union commander. Although the Civil War was bloody and ghastly in its scope, there had always been some gallantry and honor employed to plan a raid to murder the president of the Confederacy and every member of the cabinet was beyond outrageous. Kilpatrick told me that he had read Dahlgren's address to his men and that the photocopy was accurate up to the point where the orders had issued to burn Richmond and assassinate Jefferson Davis. The Confederate plot hypothesis had been given more credence in recent decades. A grand Confederate conspiracy is detailed by William A. Tidwell, James O. Hall, and David Winfrey Gaddy in their book, Come Retribution, the Confederate Secret Service and the Assassination of Lincoln. So as we go on down here, we're on page 271, and this talks about the Rothschilds and International Bank and Lincoln's death. So John Wilkes Booth is the hitman, higher gun, and his links to the powerful British bankers and the Rothschilds, which are, are not really elucidated here in this book, because like you said, John Wilkes Booth was a member of the Knights of the Golden Circle, and they had British masters, and they met and were trained in Britain. So the Rothschilds had offered loans to the Lincoln administration at very high interest, assuming that the Union had no choice other than to accept their outrageous terms. They were already funding Jefferson Davis in the, in the South. So the frugal and resourceful frontiersman spirit in Lincoln caused him to refuse the Rothschilds' offer and to acquire the necessary funds elsewhere. Although his refusal only stung their sense of pride and greed, the true reason for their planning his assassination was their knowledge that Lincoln's policies indicated a mild reconstruction of the South after the war, one that would encourage a resumption of agriculture rather than industry. Additional post-war policies likely under Lincoln would have destroyed Rothschild's commodity speculation with Lincoln out of the way. Rothschild's plan to exploit the weakness of the United States and take over its country. Now, now it's going to go on here and extend the description in the book to discuss the Jesuits' role in the assassination of Lincoln. In 1856, in Urbana, Illinois, Lincoln defended Charles Chinoquee, a rebellious priest, against charges of slander 
brought by the friends of Bishop O'Regan of Chicago, with whom Chiniqui had strong disagreement. So, so Chiniqui was on trial. Lincoln brought about a compromise settlement as a lawyer, as Chiniqui's private attorney, and that, that the priest interpreted it as a major victory over the Roman Catholic Church. As time passed, Chiniqui feared that the Jesuits, who were the stormtroopers for Rome, resented Lincoln for his triumph over the church and might one day attempt to even the score. In 1886, Chiniqui wrote 50 Years in the Church of Rome, in which he revealed that Jefferson Davis had offered a million dollars to anyone who would kill Lincoln. According to Chiniqui, he visited Lincoln in the White House on numerous occasions and tried to warn of the Catholic Church's antagonism toward him. Later, Chiniqui learned that the Jesuits trained John Wilkes Booth to become their tool of assassination. In 1906, Chiniqui swore that Lincoln had been assassinated by the Jesuits of Rome. In 1897, Thomas M. Harris, member of the 1865 Military Commission on the Lincoln assassination, wrote a book called Rome's Responsibility for the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. The accusations against the Catholic Church for the murder of our most beloved president have not dissipated with time. In 1863, Emmett McLaughlin's An Inquiry into the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln claimed that Pope Pius IX may have been the instigator of the plot to kill Lincoln, of course, obviously, along with the Rothschild banking elites in Britain, and they were going to use their assassin, a knight of the Golden Circle, John Wilkes Booth. So back to the book. McLaughlin writes, on one side were dictatorship, slavery, succession, monarchy, European imperialism, Jesuit subterfuge, and a church-dominated assault on the Monroe Doctrine, all of which found spiritual leadership in one person, Pope Pius IX. On the other side were freedom, emancipation, Freemasonry, democracy, Latin American struggle against foreign dominion, all embodied in the one person of Abraham Lincoln. And we might add here that Freemasonry in their minds was continental American Freemasonry. It wasn't manipulated by the Illuminati that hadn't been taken over by the Grand Lodges that were Illuminized in Europe and in France. So they had Continental Freemasonry over there, and they had York Lodge Freemasonry in England. And, and the American Lodges at that time were not overrun with the machinations of the European elite. They were still nationalist Freemason Lodges. I don't know if that's the case today. We'll have to do some more research. And as we go on here, it says, as an interesting footnote or two to the enigma of the Lincoln assassination, Mary Todd Lincoln went mad after the terrible Good Friday night in Ford's Theater and confined, so he was he was assassinated on Good Friday. That's interesting. And was confined to an asylum for some time, although eventually released, she never fully recovered from the shock of her husband's death. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton was also under suspicion as a member of the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln. He immediately began a movement to impeach Andrew Johnson, now who had become the president, because he suspected him as having a role in the assassination. Johnson informed Stanton that his resignation as Secretary of War was accepted and had him removed from office by the force of arms. Not long after he left office, Stanton was found dead, according to rumors by his own hand. And it would appear that the mystery of the Lincoln assassination, like the murder of JFK, would never die. An interesting treatment. I don't think that they do a full, in-depth, and truly honest look at the circumstances, but they're just conveying the facts that were present at the time, and the thinking of the people, and the ideas of the commission that was tasked with finding out who had assassinated Lincoln. And at, like we said, when they had actually found John Wilkes Booth, and the marshals actually had to do a manhunt across the planet into Europe, they actually found him in Italy, in Rome, and he was actually dressed up and hidden in plain sight as one of the Pope's Zouave guards. This is a matter of history. So he was a part of the Pope's personal security detail when he, they found him. <laughs>
this was the conspirator John Surratt. I think I misspoke and said John Wilkes Booth. He was captured and killed. I think they found him hiding in a barn. But the other conspirator, who was the son of Mary Surratt, and that's where they were they were getting together with different conspirators, and many Jesuit priests met at Mary Surratt's house. Mary Surratt herself was hung for her crime in plotting the Lincoln assassination, and John Surratt, her son, was found. First, he had escaped to Canada and went and spent time in England, and then he made his way to Rome, where he was hiding as a Zouab guard. And you can look this information up on the internet and see the images. He even had his photo taken. He was very proud of the fact that he was a part of Pope's conspiracy to kill Lincoln. It may very well be that you don't like this particular aspect of history. It doesn't work for you. Maybe your opinions on the matter, uh, maybe you feel positive towards um, Roman religion, and you think that the Pope is a great beneficent uh, bringer of peace across the world, and maybe even think that the Pope should be the world leader. And I know that, from what I understand from reading the Vatican doctrines, that they certainly believe that he is the king of the world, and that every human being on the face of the earth, in order to receive salvation, should submit and kiss the Pope's ring and follow his doctrines. And just like Tiberius Caesar at the time of Christ, there would be no king allowed, no, no ruler who was allowed to operate outside the Caesar's authority. And that's why Christ was himself crucified, and that's why Abraham Lincoln was shot, because he believed that he had the authority and the right to rule the country on behalf of the people, and that was against the wishes of the Pope. And since the Pope believes he has all spiritual and temporal authority and dominion over the face of the earth, and that all the, the kings and princes and presidents of the world should all obey him, then he certainly had the right to destroy Abraham Lincoln if Lincoln would not obey his papal commands. And that's what you're dealing with. Maybe you don't understand that aspect of history. Maybe it doesn't something that you can you can't see clearly through all the propaganda. But that's the reality of it, and you need to come to terms with it. And so we have just another reading here that we'll take a look at. Uh, C. T. Wilcox, Perverting the Promised Land, Lulu Publishing, uh, October 30th, 2015. And we'll just get right into it. After the successful murder of the Savior of the Nation, President Lincoln, on the Good Friday Easter weekend of 1865, the date of which the symbolism was not lost. The Jesuit masterminds of the most evil crime, people such as Father Bernard F. Wiggett, W-I-G-E-T, Charles H. Stone Street, N.D. Young, and Father Walter, counted among them, began to pressure President Johnson to implement the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. This amendment had a multifold purpose. It effectively altered the citizenship away from the states proper under state authority and transferred this to the Union under a centralized federal authority. Before this change, one was considered a citizen of the United States by reason of being a citizen of his particular home state. This change meant that for the first time in U.S. history, the groundwork was laid for the establishment of a more European monarchical system of government, which could be corrupted and thus making possible the ability to direct and control all the people under the volition of a single man. This amendment, on top of altering the very nature of citizenship, also removed the right of sovereignty of the individual states in areas which were not previously under federal authority and placed them under a single central government, thereby removing the right of secession. In the case of entrenched tyranny, it also turned the God-given rights of humanity, as outlined in the original Bill of Rights, based wholly on biblical principles, into mere privileges granted by the state which then can be revoked. The final purpose of this amendment was to create a foundation for empire. The reasoning of the Jesuits was that if they can corrupt the leader, 
and those around him after having corrupted the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the judiciary, the people have no choice but to submit to his authority. Ecclesiastically supported and sponsored dictatorship through the back door could then be established. It had been well stated by several historians that the Jesuits planned well ahead, in most cases of political intrigue and national transformation 100 years or more ahead. Lincoln had rebuffed this proposed amendment all through his term, and this obstinacy to the goals of the Roman Church was cited as one of the major reasons for his demise. Another purported reason to eliminate him is issued from the fact that he had begun to print currency called greenbacks and declare it to be the legal tender of the land, thereby shutting out the Rothschild bankers and preventing them from bleeding the financial life of the nation. Much in the same way as John F. Kennedy, a liberal Catholic who refused to allow the Vatican to influence him, had started to issue his silver certificates in an effort to close down the vultures of the privately owned and operated Federal Reserve Bank of New York. It has a quotation, Give me control of the nation's money, and I do not care who makes the laws. Meyer Amschel Rothschild. Rothschild learned early on how incredibly profitable it was to lend to nations instead of individuals, and at times of war, profits soared even more. Wars were expensive, troops had to be paid, munitions bought, and over a period of time, the expensive war drained a nation's treasury. Being recognized as the source for available funding, kings and rulers readily turned to the Rothschild family for money. The Rothschilds always demanded gold and silver in repayment, and when that ran out, Control over the issuance of a nation's money was then demanded. Long story short, with its unparalleled and unfathomable by most to the extent of its accumulation, the Rothschild banking clan became almost the only source of money to run a country. What may what may not be widely known is that the English Rothschild Bank funded the North and America Civil War, while the French Rothschild branch of the bank funded the Southern Confederacy. It did not matter who would win, the Rothschilds were going to increase both their wealth and, more importantly for them, their influence in U.S. politics. That had always been their primary objective. Lincoln did not want to pay the bankers up to 30 6% interest for loans to fund the war. He decided to issue greenbacks by the U.S. government, interest for free, so that the country was not burdened with any interest costs. A very big deal. Lincoln was assassinated, and, and here he says, draw your own conclusions. And after his death, Congress immediately repealed the greenback law. It should be known that when Lincoln announced his use of interest-free money as a source of funding, bankers stormed to Washington, D.C. to complain bitterly. Simply put, he was standing directly in the way of the papists and the European autocrats and therefore had to be removed. And not just him, the entire top end of the chain of command was the original target. That the Jesuits had planned the deed is beyond question as evidenced by the sworn statements and personal letters, which are now quoted in full below and housed in the Chiniqui collection. You can go to www.chiniqui.ca and look at his letters. C-H-I-N-I-Q-U-Y. Some material compromising the first chapter has never been made public, nor has it been made available to historians. So we'll just leave it there. This is a very interesting book. I think I could keep on going on and reading here more and more. C.T. Wilcox has a lot of the original papers. He's a Canadian and points out that the Southern Confederacy had its headquarters in Canada, and it so happens that he ended up 
But Wilcox ended up with a lot of the original papers and documents. So that's how he has such an expose on the subject. So we have to go back here and really relearn our historical facts and, and put in place the foundational knowledge that you need to understand what's happening. And as we go through time, history takes on an occult significance so that all these different aspects of history and the different players and the different conflicts that are taking place, as you are unaware of their true meaning and their true definition, you can no longer really fit the puzzle together and see the full, the full concept behind all the moving parts. So here we're going to look at another uh, interesting little bit of audio here. And this is back in 2012 when internet radio was breaking out and new ideas and new thinking that was relatively obscure or suppressed could come out in the open, going outside the regular media media channels. And now we have podcasts, now we have the internet, and it's important to understand that this idea of conspiracy theories where you have... Uh, the reptilians and all these kind of strange, the hollow earth, the flat earth, all these kind of weird conspiracy theories really are a, a cacophony that drowned out the really sincere articles of hidden history. So you, we need to discover these aspects of hidden history here so that you can see the full picture. So let's listen to Greg Szymanski here on his show. Uh, so it has to be an institution, and we know 
history that uh, the Patriots during that time, Samuel Morris included, broke off diplomatic relations with the Vatican after the Lincoln assassination for this very reason. Because they were involved in killing him, and they even were caught uh, uh, hiding one of the killers out, John Surratt, one of the uh, hit team, uh, in Rome. And uh, that's a fact. And then they came back for a trial. So all this stuff uh, is fact. I, yeah, I'm interested in seeing what the government's been hiding for so long, and will they ever release it? Because the real key to this thing is they've never changed. I mean, the Vatican is still controlling our government, even more today than they were back then. And they're controlling our military. Uh, our military leaders have all been trained. Most of them, the major ones, at Georgetown or Georgetown affiliated. So we have a serious problem, folks. And uh, we are being basically manipulated, like I always mention on this show, uh, basically manipulated and kept from the truth in so many different areas. And it isn't Catholic bashing to start saying these things. And that's how they hide. They've been, you know, they've been hiding behind God and Jesus too long. Well, absolutely. And Luther knew it. Calvin knew it. And many of the Protestant protesters knew it. And what they've done now is they have completely eliminated any kind of true protest. And they have made the Protestant church just an arm of Catholicism. Right. Because this <laughs> yeah. information is known by those people. They're not passing it on to the, to the lady of the, of the Protestant churches. Listen, right. it's obvious to me through the, through the research that I've done that this information is purposely hidden so as to achieve some kind of level of peace and harmony between the protesters and the whore of Rome. Right. And, and listen, the reason, the reason Abraham Lincoln didn't, didn't, didn't say so much, we know that he said plenty, but he didn't bring this out into the public discourse that the judges were involved in, in, in the, uh, the Civil War, and also he predicted that they would be his assassins, and that wasn't widely talked about, simply because we were coming out of the first Civil War, and he knew that that information, if it ever got widespreadly, widely known, would launch us directly into the Second Civil War. Right. And, sure. And what really gets me, you know as well as I do, that they protected these Lincoln documents for so long to protect somebody, okay? But that exactly. somebody that they're trying to protect is more in control of our government now than they ever were. And it really tells me something. Now, I don't know if it struck you or not. They don't oh, exactly. It's not only It's not only government. It is the media. We see it at all levels. Uh, the mainstream, the alternative. Uh, we see it. Uh, in most every aspect of our life, but the religious aspect, and people have forgotten history, and that's what they want you to do. Let me just read you three paragraphs from a book by, it's called 50 Years in the Church of Rome by Father Charles Chinequi. And Father Chinequi knew Abraham Lincoln and was represented by him. When, when Father Chinequi rebelled against the Catholic Church in Illinois, uh, he was framed by the Jesuits for rape. He hired President, well, at this time a young lawyer named Abraham Lincoln, who put on the stand so many, uh, well, he first of all got Chinequi off the charge, and during that trial, many people came on, were forced to testify about the true uh, motive.
representatives of the Catholic Church and their doctrine and the Jesuits. And that's where Lincoln started to understand exactly what the church was doing. And that's who killed him. And Father Jinnick, we for years had stated that Lincoln was killed for these reasons. His documents were kept in a house in Illinois that was burned down by the Vatican, but he kept uh, copies of every document he had, and he left them with his surviving relatives in Canada. These were uncovered in 1990, or just recently, not too long ago, by a writer named C.T. Wilcox, who met the last surviving member of the Chinique family, who gave him personal letters Lincoln wrote about the Vatican and the Jesuits and how evil they were, and the Vatican never knew they existed. He asked this woman who was in her 80s or 90s when she finally passed away why she was giving them up, and she said, I kept them a secret because I thought they would kill me, or I knew they would try to kill me if they knew they were existence. He wrote the book Transformation of America, which is out now. He's a Canadian who's trying to help Americans understand what's going on. And it's just devastating. But in Chinequi's book, he says this, and it's really important to listen to a few things. He says, quotes a, a Spanish order named Castellar. And Castellar was speaking of his own Church of Rome in 1869. And he said, quote, there is not a single progressive principle that has not been cursed by the Catholic Church. This is true of England and Germany as well as of Catholic countries. The Church cursed the French Revolution, the Belgian Constitution, and Italian independence. Not a constitution has been born, not a step of progress made, not a solitary reform effected, which has not been under the terrific persecution of the Church. But, Chinequi asks, why ask the testimony of Protestants or liberals to warn the American people against the conspiracy the Catholic Church has against your country, when all we have to do is look at public testimony of all bishops and priests to prove it? With the most daring impudence, the Church of Rome, through her leading men, is boasting of her stern determination to destroy all the rights and privileges which have cost so much blood to this American people. Let the Americans who have eyes to see and intelligence to understand read the following unimpeachable documents and judge for themselves of what will become of this country if Rome is allowed to grow strong enough to execute its threats. The church of, and he says this, the church says, the church is of necessity intolerant of heresy. Heresy she endures when and where she must, but she hates it and directs all her energies to destroy it. If Catholics ever gain a sufficient numerical majority in this country. Religious freedom is at an end. So our enemies say, so we believe. The quote, no man has a right to choose his religion. Catholicism is the most intolerant of creeds. It is the intolerance itself. We might as rationally maintain that two and two does not make four as the theory of religious liberty. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, the church, he says this, the church is instituted as every Catholic who understands his religious beliefs to guard and defend the right of God against any and every enemy at all times and all places. I'll just pause the recording right there. You can see that it's a little bit old, but the information is very crucial for you. You need to understand what the discussion has been since the 1860s uh, all along. Real historians have known these facts, and real researchers have understood what the general public has, what has been suppressed from the general public, and what has been cut out of the, the textbooks in college. Even people who graduate with and go to university with historian degrees still don't comprehend this aspect. 
aspect of history. And a lot of times it doesn't really matter to people. A lot of people are not really religious. They don't really believe in Christianity. They use their freedom in America to just pursue happiness and just to live their life. They don't understand the vendetta and the vitriolic nature of our enemy in Rome. They don't understand that there is a vengeance coming to suppress our our popular republic because to be honest the ecclesiastics in rome don't believe that any nation should be allowed to exist that isn't under the authority of the pope of rome as we move forward we're going to be working hard to make these connections and to build this the foundational facts of history and make the case for you and i think you're going to be surprised to understand what is really going on and the next facet of our discussion as we establish these pillars of true history has to do with this political externalization of the imperial power which transforms our protestant limited baptist republic into this enormous sprawling federal empire that we have today and as we discussed earlier state citizenship was reversed and replaced with federal citizenship. And it's maybe not immediately obvious how that this is a new problematic position for us. This new citizenship, the difficulty and the problems that it creates will become clear as we go through future episodes. The states granted, originally granted their sovereign power as independent nation states to the federal government. To grant, to give the federal government a limited grant of power, the federal government originally had enumerated limited powers while the states as independent nations kept their own sovereign jurisdiction. And after the Civil War, states' rights were subordinate to the federal government. And the federal government was now supreme, could control the states, and the citizens now had federal citizenship. You were no longer a Pennsylvanian or a New Yorker or a citizen of your state, but you are now a public federal U.S. citizen of the United States. And you are now de facto property of the commander-in-chief. And you have to understand that before the Civil War, the presidency had limited powers, and there were no executive orders, and there was no commander-in-chief. But after the Civil War, because Lincoln had to establish emergency war powers, remember all the Southern senators, Southern representatives, and the federal government had left. That broke the quorum of the legislative body. So there was no longer any way to vote or to hold legislative session. So they, by leaving, they had practically destroyed the legislative republic of the United States, and they went down to the South, and they created a new country, the Confederacy. And so in order to raise an army, in order to run the country, in order to raise the funds from the Bank of England, in order to get the cannons, in order to, to have the authority to establish his generals and to run the country in general, Abraham Lincoln had to establish executive orders. So he had to create federal emergency war powers. And in doing this, he became the commander-in-chief. And this is the first time that an executive order was ever used. And his intention and his stated intention was to put back the republic into its place where the president would be a duly elected representative and would sign or veto the laws that were established by the legislature. And he would end his war powers and end the process of using executive orders to create and execute laws. But the fact is, is that he was killed and he was assassinated in Ford's theater. So he was never able to make the Republic whole again and to give up these authorities that he had created under an emergency war power. So after Andrew Johnson comes in, he does not rescind his war powers and his emergency powers, and he continues to write executive orders. So this seat of burgeoning tyranny begins to be positioned in the presidency, and the extraordinary emergency war powers that were established by Lincoln were never rescinded, so they still are in effect. So we're going to talk about more 
about this this conversation later and about the extraordinary, unlimited lawmaking power of the President of the United States being the commander-in-chief who can command the army and who, in the wrong hands, the seat of the presidency could become a powerful and dangerous tyranny. And I think that's what we're going to be dealing with coming up here soon. So let's talk again next time. Thanks for listening.